Well, you can open up to James chapter 2. that thunder that we heard kind of keeps moving around us that way. I think it will. <laughs> well, without a doubt, the most important question that you can ever answer in your life is the nature of your relationship to the creator God of the universe. I mean, that's it. That's the most important thing. There are other important questions, but that is at the top of the list. Are you still unforgiven for your sins? Are you still under his wrath over sin? Or have you been saved by grace through faith and been forgiven of your sins? And because your sins have been wiped away, you will have eternity, a home in heaven, eternal life with him. I mean, that's the question. One of those two options. Now, it's clear from the New Testament that there are going to be people who live life, their 80 years or however many they're given, fully expecting to be received into God's presence when they die. They're banking on it. And when they get there, they're going to hear these words, depart from me, I never knew you. I mean, it's going to happen. What the Bible's saying is there are going to be people who are deceived, fully and completely deceived about their spiritual state. And I think one of the areas where it is maybe most easy to be deceived is regarding this doctrine that we teach and we believe regarding salvation by faith alone. Now, it's quite easy to have the wrong understanding of faith. And I'm, a, I'm afraid that many people misdiagnose what real faith is. They don't understand what the Bible teaches about the nature of true faith. So, we believe that the Bible teaches that there is a moment of conversion. You are born dead in your sins. You have no spiritual life. And then there is a moment in time where you receive spiritual life. I mean, Jesus teaches on this in John chapter 3. You are born again. And now you have entered the kingdom. Your heart is made new. And I think that the danger in that, the way that can be misunderstood, is that sometimes we can put all of our confidence all of our faith in that maybe prayer that you might have prayed at the moment you believe you were converted. And so you maybe think back and you think, well, I prayed to receive Christ. I had a conversion experience. And this was, I think, fairly common in the church I grew up in. We, from time to time, we would have evangelists come in and they would hold week-long revival meetings. And these guys would stand up and they would preach every night at 7 p.m. And we would all gather there and they would, they would preach for a while. And then at the end, they would pray and they would have everyone bow their heads and close their eyes. And they would have an extended time of what they called invitation. 
and they would try to convince you to walk the aisle and come forward and pray to receive Jesus into your heart and be converted and be born again. And then after someone did this and after someone prayed, they would assure that person with full confidence that they had become a Christian. You've placed your faith in Christ. You have become a Christian tonight and no one can ever take that away from you. And so people would walk out and they would, they would think, I'm good now. And some of them would go out and live however they wanted to and believe that because of that experience, because of that prayer, because they were told that they were born again in that moment, that they were good to go and that they had entrance into heaven secured. They didn't need to worry about it anymore. Over the years, I can't tell you how many times I have had people tell me that they have a loved one, a parent, a child, a friend who was saved at a young age. They made a profession of faith. They prayed to receive Christ. Maybe they walked an aisle, but they're not really following Jesus now. They haven't been to church in years. They're not really living as the Bible describes the way a believer should live, but over and over again, I've been told this person is confident that this loved one is, is a believer, that they're in heaven, that they're, they're going to heaven when they die. They'll be with the Lord. Now, I, I can't know a person's heart. I can't know every, every single situation where that happens when I've been told that about some, some loved one. But what I can tell you is what the Bible teaches. And that's what I want to do this morning from James chapter 2. The Bible teaches that when there is a profession of faith, when there is a prayer that is prayed, when there's a conversion experience that is had that does not produce a changed life, that does not lead to actions, that does not lead to a heart that is made new, and it grows in Christ's likeness and virtue. When that happens, that profession, that conversion experience was not real. No matter how deeply it was felt, no matter, no matter how many tears were shed, it was not real, according to the Bible. Now, I'm not trying to be controversial. I'm not trying to be harsh this morning. I'm not trying to put anyone in a bad mood. But I, I do want to be faithful to the scriptures this morning. And that's what James chapter 2 teaches. I think we need to carefully weigh what James says in James 2, 14 to 26. And I think we need to carefully think about it as it relates to those we love. Because we can't really care for those we love if we're not faithful to what the scriptures teach about salvation by faith alone. Now, I hope you're open to James chapter 2. And before we get to the details of this, and I sort of lay out where we're going to be the next this week and then two weeks from now, Pastor Marcel's preaching next Sunday. My family will be on vacation. But before, before we get to that, I want to point out that this passage is endlessly talked about by scholars, by pastors. There is a wealth of information. Uh, I read an entire book trying to address this passage and how it relates to what the Apostle Paul teaches. I mean, you can get so much information. It's endless on, on this passage. And the reason for that is because on the surface, 
James 2 seems to be saying the exact opposite of what the Apostle Paul teaches. All right, so I want you to look down at James chapter 2 and verse 24, okay? Maybe you've never read this or thought about it in this way before, but look at James 2 verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, it seems pretty straightforward seems to fly in the face of what we teach here and what Protestants have believed for a long time. And it seems to fly in the face of what the Apostle Paul teaches. Let me read you what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. You don't have to turn over there. I'll read it to you. For, this is verses 2 to 4, 2 to 5. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Okay, we've got a problem here. Paul seems to be teaching the opposite of what James says. These texts seem to be contradicting one another. So what do we do with this? Do we sort of ignore it and try not to deal with it and just sort of read these passages in isolation from one another? Now, clearly, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God and that it is without error. There are no errors in the scriptures. And we believe that both Romans and James are part of the scriptures, the canon that was passed down to us. So there's no contradiction here. If what we believe about the Bible is right, then we can put these two passages together and there is a way to understand them that will not put them at odds with one another. We have to be able to harmonize the teaching of Paul and the teaching of James. But here's what I don't want to do this morning. We will harmonize their teaching, but what I don't want to do is I don't want to neuter James's teaching this morning. I don't want to, to take the force out of what James is saying. I want this to sit on us, and I want us to feel the weight of what James is teaching in James chapter 2. James isn't joking when he says that justification is by works and not by faith alone. And he's not using that word justification in a different way than Paul is. It's the same way. But he's not teaching anything different from Paul, and he's not contradicting what we have believed as a church and what Protestants have believed for a long time. So how do we fit them together? I hope you're sufficiently feeling the tension right now. That's a good thing. It's okay to feel that. And we'll get there. In a couple weeks, I will help you to fit these two together and show you how Paul and James are not in contradiction to one another. But what we need to do before we get to that harmonization is we need to walk through James's passage and we need to let his logic unfold before us. And I think you'll start to see how this works as we go through this text. And what we need to do is let this text correct us rather than us correcting this passage of scripture. We don't want to just say, well, James can't be saying that. Okay, here's what he must mean without diving into it and fully understanding what he's going after in this passage.
So here's what we're going to do this week and two weeks from now, all right? We're going to see four ways to have a faith that won't save. Four ways, obviously tongue-in-cheek, you don't want to have a faith that won't save. Four ways to have a faith that won't save. The first one of these ways is found in verses 14 to 17, and here's how I would state it. You pronounce nice things. You say nice things without acting on them. Verses 14 to 17. I think the thunder provides a nice background probably to the live stream, so this is good. All right? So the first way is you pronounce nice things. You say nice things without acting on them. So here when we get to 14, verse 14, James is starting a new section. Look at verse 14 with me. What good is it, my brothers? And if you've been with us, you know in James, he starts a new section by calling them my brothers or my beloved brothers. And so he's going into a new topic. Now it's not divorced from the previous teaching that we've received. It all flows together. But here he's starting something new. And this is going to go all the way down through verse 26. Let me read the rest of verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, his point here, and the reason he opens with this question, what good is it, what use is it, is because he's trying to go after a sort of faith, a sort of belief that doesn't actually accomplish anything. It's useless. It's worthless faith. Now look at verse 17. He does this again. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, right? It's dead. It's useless. Look down at verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? It doesn't amount to anything. And then look down at verse 26. He ends this way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. That's the theme of this passage. And that's why we're calling it four ways to have a faith that won't save. Because it's worthless faith. It's useless faith. It's no good. And what James means by useless is defined for us in verse 14. Look there. The last phrase, can that faith save him? Being saved is the good that he wants our faith to result in. And so this type of faith that he's talking about is worthless in the sense that it cannot save you. It is true faith that saves. That's what the scriptures teach. James talks about faith throughout this passage. Not because he's swinging all the way to where works are what save you in and of themselves, but what he's saying here is that faith, true faith, saves you, and he's going to show us what a useless or a worthless faith looks like. There is a form of faith that appears to be faith and appears to be belief, but it doesn't actually accomplish any good in you. It doesn't actually give you new life and eternal life. What sort of faith is that? What is he talking about here? It is a faith that does not lead to works. I mean, he couldn't be clear. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? This is a faith that is professed. It is pronounced. 
This person says he has faith, and he is probably confident that he has genuine faith. He speaks about his faith. It's an affirmation of the gospel, of the truths of the gospel, with words. But James would say there are no actions flowing from this faith. I think there's probably not a person here this morning most of you would affirm the gospel if I asked you to this morning. Most of us would, right? And most of us could explain the gospel. If I said, what is the gospel? You could give me a clear definition and clear understanding of the gospel. And that's probably true of most of your family and friends, or at least some of them. They could affirm the gospel. And I don't think they're lying. They would say, I believe in Jesus. I believe there's a God. And I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But saying the right things and pronouncing the right things doesn't necessarily mean that you possess new life and eternal life. So one of the things James does in this book is he gives us illustrations to help make his point. And he does that beautifully in verses 15 and 16. So look there with me. He's kind of made his main point in verse 14, and now in 15 and 16 he illustrates that point for us. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? It's the same question that he asked in verse 14. What good is that? So here's the situation. Notice this is not just a person off the street. This is not a random individual that none of us knows. This is a brother or sister. This is a member of the church community. This is someone that you know personally. And this person has serious needs. They lack proper attire. Maybe it's winter and they don't have a jacket because they can't afford to get one. Their clothes are old and tattered. They do not have enough money to get food on a regular basis. Their daily bread is not provided for them. They lack it. So imagine if you're here and you find out about a brother or sister who is in this sort of situation. Maybe you didn't know it before but you find out this morning, maybe they've lost their job due to the pandemic, and they are in a rough spot. And when you find that out, your response is verse 16. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Now what's amazing about verse 16 is these are spiritual words. Go in peace. You're wishing God's peace on this person. And there's some evidence that you're actually encouraging them to pray about their situation here. You want them to be warmed and filled by God. God, You're saying to them, God will provide for you. Go in God's peace. I hope he provides for you. And you really believe it. You really are hopeful. You have faith that God will provide for them and that he'll meet their needs. It sounds very pious. It sounds very spiritual. It sounds very Christian in a lot of ways. But James uses this illustration here to make the point that those words, even though they sound pious and spiritual, don't actually do anything. 
they don't accomplish anything. That's why he says what he says at the end of verse 16. What good is that? It doesn't accomplish any good. You can say all the pious sounding phrases that you want. You can post verses on Facebook every morning and every evening. You can speak truths to people, which is a necessary and a good thing to do. You can talk about doctrine. You can talk about church life. You can talk about ministry. You can talk about Jesus all you want. But James is saying actually meeting genuine needs of other people it doesn't accomplish any good doesn't do anything look at verse 17 so also faith by itself if it does not have works is dead it's the same situation when we say we have faith and it doesn't result in works, it's not any good. It doesn't accomplish anything. So if you see that person in need, and you if you actually care for them, then you'll go and buy them some clothes, and you'll take them to Chipotle for lunch. Because that's a true sign of love. Faith works by taking people to Chipotle. And that's what James says here. You will act on it if you actually care. If you're not just trying to sound pious and spiritual, then you will provide for them. You will help them in their moment of need. And in the same way, my loved one, my friend, can say all they want. That they met Jesus 25 years ago and that they're a Christian. they walked an aisle as a teenager and prayed a prayer and made a confession of faith. But unless there is a changed life, that profession, that faith that they have is dead. Now obviously James here is building a case. He's making an argument in this passage. And one of the tactics that he uses to make this argument is he imagines that there's an opponent who is responding to what he's just said. And that's what he begins doing in verse 18, and we'll encounter this opponent throughout the rest of the passage. But verse 18 begins our second way to have a faith that can't save. So the first way is that you pronounce nice things, you say nice things without acting on them. And the second way that you have a faith that won't save is you partition off faith from works. You divide them and act as if they're two separate things. Now, one of the difficulties of this, this whole discussion is the way we normally talk about faith and works. And I get it. It's hard. We don't want to sort of smuggle works into the back door of our faith because it is faith alone that saves. And we don't want to think that we can earn righteousness before God. But there's, a, there's also an error that separates faith from works and treats them like two different things that don't really have anything to do with one another. And so James imagines his opponent going in this direction, and that's what we find in verse 18. Look there. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So you can see here this person is 
dividing faith out from works. So he, what's he doing? He's imagining that faith and works are almost like gifts that are given from God. Some people have faith, some people have works. Both of those are, this person would say, both of those are legitimate ways to approach God. Paul actually even talks about faith as a gift and works or serving as a gift. And so this person would say, well, some people have faith, some people have works, both are acceptable ways to approach God. And the underlying point he's making is these are separate things. They don't always go together. You can parse them out. And James challenges this. Look at the rest of verse 18. He says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So what he wants his opponent to do is prove, that's why he says show, prove the reality of your faith apart from your works. And the point is you can't do it. You can't prove genuine faith without a changed life, without works. A profession saying nice things, saying you have faith, doesn't mean you have faith. And the only way to really demonstrate it is through a changed life. And that's why James says, I will show you my faith by my works. I can demonstrate the reality of my faith by the changed life that I have. Here's the point. Genuine faith, faith that saves, faith that is worthwhile, always proves itself by actions, by a changed heart and by a changed life. I don't know if any of you have ever heard people before talk about the carnal Christian. This is, I haven't heard it a lot lately, but this is a category that uh, I've heard people teach over the years or explain that there can be this imagined person who is saved, genuinely converted, and then they remain a baby Christian for the rest of their lives. They sort of never make progress in the Christian life. They don't actually grow to become like Jesus. They sort of are stagnant, but they're truly saved. Now, there's no doubt that the Bible teaches that there are times where true believers act like unbelievers. I mean, it's all over the place, right? I mean, think about King David. That guy acted like an unbeliever. At least a couple of times in significant ways. And that happens to true believers. The Bible is full of examples of saints who don't act like saints at any given moment. But the Bible also could not be clearer that you cannot separate true faith from works. You can't partition these things out. You can't have real faith and stay a baby Christian and a carnal Christian. When you are a new believer, when you have eternal life, it results in good works. That's how it happens. New life equals action. Now, some of you are, are familiar, some of you have young children in your house right now. And young children in the house means at least a couple of things. Noise and activity. Young children result in noise and activity. A healthy baby screams. It's okay. It's a perfect illustration, right? And it's not wrong. It's exactly what should be happening. A healthy baby eats. I'm scared to say this next one because a healthy baby poops, right? A 
healthy baby smiles eventually. They walk around. They start to play with things. They're active. When our three-year-old wakes up in the morning, he hits the ground running. It's unbelievable. In our house, I'm normally the first one up. And so I have this whole breakfast routine that I go through every morning and I get up and go upstairs and start working on it, making coffee, making eggs, all of that stuff. And he is normally the second one up. And there is no doubt when he is awake. Normally he comes out of his room with toys in his hand and he is ready to roll, ready to attack the day. And at the end of the day, on a normal basis, he has bumps, he has bruises, he has mosquito bites, he has scrapes, and you know it's been a good day when all of those things are true. Here's the point. Life is active. Life is energetic. It is passionate. Life moves. It's noisy. It's painful at times. It does make mistakes. Life is loud. Life is eager. And that is so true of spiritual life. If you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, if you have been given a new heart, there's activity. There's works. And that activity and that energy and that passion and the pain and the mistakes demonstrate the reality of new life. And someone claiming that they have faith without any of the signs of new life is someone who has a faith that is worthless and is useless. Now James continues to address this imagined opponent here in verse 19. And this gets us to the last way to have a faith that can't save that we're going to address this morning. And we'll get to the last one, the fourth one next week. But here we go. The, the third way to have a faith that can't save in verse 19 is to profess the right theology, to profess the right theology, the right doctrine, in the same way that the demons do, like the demons do. So look with me at verse 19. You believe that God is one. Now notice what James is saying there, God is one. That is taken from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6.4 is a passage that you may be familiar with. It's one of the key statements of the identity of God in the Old Testament. It's called the Shema. And here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This, in many ways, is sort of a summary statement for the whole Jewish faith. This defines the nation of Israel as monotheistic. They were completely different from all the nations around them. They worshipped one God and believed that that one God was the creator God. And so this set them apart. This was their creed. And Jewish people would pronounce this every single day. They would actually articulate it and say it with their mouths. And they believed it, that their God was one God, the creator God. And they believed that he chose them as his people and he redeemed them. It's like a creedal statement, the center of the Jewish faith. And James here says, if you say that, 
if you affirm that, he uses a little bit of sarcasm here, and he says, you do well. He's like, that's great. <laughs> and we know it's sarcasm that he's using there because of the rest of verse 19. Look there. Even the demons believe. Even the demons believe the same doctrinal thing that you do. You can intellectually affirm a creedal statement or a doctrinal statement. You can affirm points of doctrine. You can say with me, God is one. God is good. God is merciful. God is the redeemer. He is just and righteous and holy. You can say those things and you can actually affirm them in your heart and in your mind. But that doesn't advance you any further than the demons. Listen to Mark chapter 5. This is where Jesus confronts the man in the tombs. He crosses the Sea of Galilee, gets onto shore, and the man in the tombs comes running up to him, filled with all sorts of demons. Here's what the man says. When he saw Jesus from, a, from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I mean, that's right. That's who Jesus is. He knows who Jesus is. All those demons affirm exactly who Jesus is. And he says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. I mean, that's a full creedal statement of exactly who Jesus is. There is some amount of theological precision in that statement. They knew the right answers and they could affirm them. Now, let me make a little aside here because I think I need to address something that James is not doing here, okay? Right? James is not knocking theology here. He's not knocking creeds. Creeds are not bad. They're actually quite good and helpful. He's not knocking carefully put together statements of doctrinal belief and theology. From time to time, you'll hear Christians kind of go down this road. They'll talk about people who try to be precise in their doctrine and try to be careful in their doctrine, like they're just sort of discussing how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, and it's not really worthwhile. It's not useful. There's Christians, they would say, who are too caught up in the details of doctrine and too worried about precision. Sometimes Christians are cautious about creeds, something like the Apostles' Creed, because they fear that reciting that or memorizing that, committing it to memory, something like the Apostles' Creed or the Lord's Prayer, can become an opportunity for sort of a, a dead reciting of that without any true faith behind it. Sort of a mindless duty to recite something like the Apostles' Creed. Now, I, I get it. That can be a danger, right? You could do that. If you memorized the Apostles' Creed and tried to say it every day or the Lord's Prayer, you could mindlessly recite that. But I would say there's a far greater danger in not knowing what you believe, in not having theological precision, and in not knowing what the church has taught over the centuries. I mean, that's important. So James here is not arguing, he's not making the statement that doctrine, that theology is unimportant. What he's doing here is saying, actually, this doctrine that God is one is so important, it's so significant, 
and it should get so deep into your soul that it actually changes your life. And it's not something you just mindlessly recite, but it's something that changes you at the deepest level. And you become a different person who lives out his or her faith. If all you ever do is affirm words and recite a creed and think you're good and say that you've made a profession of faith, then you are no better off than the demons here. But being afraid of doctrine or of a creed because someone could say it without a changed life is like not driving a car because you're afraid that someone might speed at some point. The problem is not the car. The problem is not the creed. The problem is disconnecting the creed and the theology from action. That's the problem here. Now there's an unbelievable irony in this verse, right? The demons affirm the right things, and even the demons have some sort of a response to the truth. I mean, look at the end of verse 19. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. I mean, they, they know who God is, and it actually causes them to have a reaction to it, because they know how powerful he is. They know how holy he is. Now, they don't love Jesus, they don't repent of their sins, they don't engage in good works, but at least they have some response to the belief that God is one. At least there's something there in some way. And I think James would say, look, there are people who claim, they say, that they believe that there is one creator God, and he has made humans to worship him only. And then those human beings sinned against him. And now he is going to pour out his wrath against their sins. But in his grace, God has sent his son to the world and offered forgiveness of sins and new life through his death and through his resurrection. And so there are people who affirm all of that in their minds. They would say those things. They could articulate those things. But then it has no impact in their lives. They can't even be bothered to show up at church on a regular basis. They're not even slightly concerned that they should possibly find out what this creator God calls them to do and believe and that their life should conform to his word. They say these things about this infinitely powerful God who is just and holy and righteous and good and then they don't even shudder over it. They don't even care. It doesn't make a bit of difference in their lives. They live like the world. They live like they don't believe it's true. And then they imagine that because they verbalize it and affirm it, or they prayed a prayer a while ago, that they're safe and they're good to go. And I would think that would be a scary place to be. So, we have one more way that faith can't save you that we're going to look at next week in verses 20 through 26. And this is where we're going to bring it all together and harmonize it. And we're going to look at scripture in the Old Testament. And we're going to look at the Apostle Paul. And I think this is going to be very helpful to you. But this is heavy. So how should you respond to this this morning? James is kind of in your face here. And I've tried to be faithful to both the tone and the words that James is using here. 
because he takes people who make a profession and don't live it out very seriously. So I think here's a here's a appropriate response. Don't panic. Don't freak yourself out with guilt. Start imagining that maybe your profession of faith is false. But be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. And here's the thing about this God. He is gracious and he is merciful. And here's the point of what James is saying. That grace and that mercy will not leave you unchanged. He's not going to give you new life and then let you wallow in your sins. He's going to give you new life and renew your heart and renew the way you live and transform you to look more like Christ. And to go back to that grace and go back to that mercy this morning and live there and soak in that goodness and that will bring about a renewed life and move you to action. And I think that would be an appropriate response to what James has said this morning. So let's pray. Father, this is a heavy passage. It's serious and Lord, we're just not used to being confronted with the scriptures in this way. And so I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts. I pray that we would take what James is saying seriously. And I pray that we would dive back into the work of Christ and that would motivate us and compel us to live it out in our daily lives. Lord, I pray that we would be honest with ourselves and honest concerning family and friends and loved ones regarding the impact of the gospel in our lives. New life brings activity. And if there's no activity, we have reason to pause and reason to question what's going on, Lord. Give us the wisdom, give us the grace to understand this text and to apply it to our lives. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.